This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Barbara Ramirez. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight on GJ, we bring you two interviews with Jewish Voice for Peace from the local and national chapters. We hear from Lori Rudolph and Dina Affek from Jewish Voice for Peace, Albuquerque. And we share an interview from our friends at Counterspin, where host and producer Janine Jackson speaks with Sonia Meyerson-Knox, the communications director of Jewish Voice for Peace, the national organization. We hope that you find both of these interviews informative and educational. Jewish Voice for Peace organizes grassroots, multiracial, cross-class, intergenerational movements of Jewish communities in the United States, guided by a vision of justice, equality, and dignity for all people. On a local level, we bring you an interview that was pre-recorded with Lori Rudolph and Dina Affek from the Albuquerque chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. This is Roberta Rael with Generation Justice, and I am here this evening with two members from Jewish Voice for Peace local chapter, and we are happy to have them on with us. We have Lori Rudolph and Dina Affeck. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I would love for you all to help us know more about Jewish Voice for Peace its mission, and the history of the organization. Yeah. So um, our mission is really to to work towards a just world, in particular, uh, a just world in Palestine um, for rights, human rights of Palestinians. We are concerned with human rights, with international law, and we are working towards and, and believing in the possibility of a just solution that provides life, dignity, uh, safety for all people living in that area. Thank you so much, Dina. Appreciate that. How old is the organization? It started in 1996 in the Bay Area. and. For a number of years, it was um, a local organization that then expanded and became a national organization, I believe, in the early 2000s. Uh, and it went through many different permutations and, tr and transformations. So it went from being a Zionist-driven organization to an anti-Zionist organization over the years. And it's very much embedded now within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement. Thank you for that. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening right now. And I'd like to start off with exploring and for you all to help me and us to understand um, 
what is anti-Semitism? Help us understand just the nuance of the narrative that has evolved. Lori, would you like to address that first? For me, anti-Semitism is, is one, an expression of hatred towards Jews, and it gets manifested in different forms of discrimination. Uh, as I said, during my parents' time, it was systemic in this uh, society. Uh, and I believe, however, after World War II, um, when our status and identity began to shift, based on my own experiences as a Jewish person in this country, anti-Semitism overt forms of anti-Semitism significantly declined. And it's a difficult question for me to answer because I feel, unfortunately, that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to differentiate real anti-Semitism from anti-Semitism that has been newly defined by other entities uh, in our country, and I'm referring to the completion of anti equating anti-Zionism or criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. So it's 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 complicated and uh, through my eyes. I have personally experienced anti-Semitism. Uh, certainly I encounter microaggressions. Uh, and I did receive a, a death call, uh, a death threat rather, by by someone who who obviously knew me at the time, who threatened to uh, uh, go after me because uh, I killed Jesus Christ. Um, and when I called the police to alert them to what happened, they brushed me off, and that was very hurtful and troubling that they minimized my own experience. Certainly anti-Semitism exists in the US. Certainly it's on the rise, but I don't know to what extent. Uh, we saw what happened in Pittsburgh in the synagogue, the killing of, of several Jewish people. And I think it's very unfortunate that perhaps in some ways it's like crying wolf because of this constant conflation of criticism of Israel, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism that perhaps we're beginning to lose our own credibility when it comes to identifying what is anti-Semitism in this country. Thank you. I think anything that either of you can help <laughs> our listeners to understand um, kind of be a narrative shift. And I hear you say that, Lori, as well, that it's changing narrative to help our listeners understand the shift in narrative that is currently happening, maybe as a result of the un unfortunate, I think it was a horrible attack that happened on October 7th related to so much other history. But since then, there's been a rapid shift of narrative. And so I'd like you to like, just help us mm -hmm. to understand. So I wanna 
go back to what anti-Semitism is, and I agree with a lot of what, what Laurie is saying. Bottom line, it's hatred of Jews. Uh, it's conflating Jews and attaching a negative attribute, stereotype, whatever, to Jews. I don't think it's that complicated. I think it is very similar to Islamophobia, when people say all Muslims are terrorists or racism, black people are blah, 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 brown people are blah, blah, blah. The same thing, Jews are controlling the world, Jews are all conniving, Jews will not replace us was one of those, those slogans by the um, white supremacists. That is anti-Semitism. What is happening right now is a deliberate, in my opinion, effort to mix up Zionism, anti-Zionism, a critique of Israel with anti-Semitism. And I, in my opinion, this is a, a deliberate tactic to muddy the waters and to make it seem it's really complicated. It is not complicated. Criticizing another country and its policies, whatever the country is, whoever is the, the president and the government and whatever, is never an ism. We are not saying that being, if you're opposing China's policies in, in Tibet, that this is anti, you know, anybody who, who is from Asian origin. That doesn't get conflated. But in this situation, it gets conflated. And in my opinion, it gets dangerously conflated. What the um, House just voted on is an absolute disgrace. It's absolutely horrific. And I think it actually in itself is anti-Semitic and is gonna promote more anti-Semitism. There, there needs to be a distinction between what we're what our opinions are and what our beliefs are about a whole people. The the problem is that it's not just deliberate on on the part of uh, you know the right wing here or, or Zionists, but it's also deliberately conflating Israel and what Israel stands for with Judaism. And uh, Netanyahu and other people in his government um, have done that for many, many years. Whenever Israel is saying we are attacked, oh, all Jews are being attacked. They're conflating it. And then when people say, choose to this, choose to that, then they're saying that's anti-Semitism. Thank you so much, Dina. I appreciate that. And I'm just going to surmise just a tiny bit. So what I'm hearing you say is critique or criticism of a government mm -hmm. or a powerful entity mm -hmm not the same as hatred toward a people. Right, exactly. So in this US, mm -hmm. we have supposedly uh, freedom of speech. And so 
U.S. citizens criticize our own government all mm-hmm, the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people feel like that's part of our responsibility as U.S. citizens right. to hold to account those in power. And what I'm hearing you clarify is criticizing a government, criticizing a entity of power is not the same as criticizing all U.S. citizens, what our government does and how our government uses our money, uh, our taxpayer money is different than what the populace often want. And so distinguishing the two is important Mm -hmm. at every level uh, and actually provides more protection for Jewish people and others who have been discriminated historically. So that's what I'm picking up from both of you and why I have in our, if I've articulated it incorrectly. So, so I want to say something about in New Mexico, our governor has uh, put forth proclamation what was it looking an for exec- she issued an, an executive, executive order. order last year and in that she accepted the definition of anti-semitism that includes anti-zionist opposition to to israel as anti-semitic the uh, and that that definition is mentioned actually in the House resolution. Uh, briefly afterwards, they just go into like a list of awful things that happened. Um, but they list that the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association Alliance. 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 Yeah. Right. So a few of us uh, in JVP with in coalition with some other groups have been very worried about that that resolution and that a statement by the governor and that executive order by the governor and are working hard to try to get the governor to to rescind it uh, we have not been uh, successful we have collected uh, a number of uh, signatures from a variety of people um, who oppose this but it is a very dangerous precedent and the fact that the the house now adopted this resolution is really a very dangerous um, development in this country and um, for our first amendment rights of freedom of speech but also for a number of other other reasons thank you so much dina for helping us to know more about even locally what is going on Mm -hmm. What is it that you would like our elected officials or our official leaders to do? What is it that you are hoping for from them? Uh, I, w- I would like to uh, address it. And, and this is pretty much sharing Jewish voice for peace, what we are demanding and wanting from our government and what we're calling for and what we've been uh, pushing for since October 7th is an immediate and permanent ceasefire. That's the number one goal right now. And this is the number one ask. And we're trying to 
get them to understand, and they they know this that uh, that there is no military solution to the conflict, and we want them to use all diplomatic tools that are available. Um, the second um, demand is for the placement of a UN international protection force because Palestinians, as we all see, have no security and no entity at this time to protect them from uh, Israeli military in any part of Palestine, and this includes the West Bank. We want them to stop all U.S. military aid to Israel. And some have, some senators like Bernie Sanders has uh, expressed the possibility of conditioning aid, which is uh, something that I think some, if not many, would welcome. And then the last is to prevent the expulsion and transfer the Palestinian population of Gaza, uh, because right now the threat of ethnic cleansing is looming. And from a distance, it looks very much like ethnic cleansing. Uh, so these are the immediate demands. And uh, I'm not going to get into the long-term solutions, but for now, this is what we're focusing on in our activism. Yeah, at this time of crisis, this is what Jewish Voice yeah. for Peace as a national organization is okay. asking. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate um, yeah. you breaking that down. So we talked about elected officials, uh, folks in power. Now, what is your message for common folk, for those of us listening, those of us that, you know, are going to work every day and raising kids or doing whatever it is that we're doing every day in this country. And then we kind of get a glimpse of what's happening through social media or through other entities. And then people are asking, what, what should I be doing right now? Dina, could you respond to that? Yes. There is a bloodbath going on, a horrible, horrible bloodbath, a genocide that is of un, like proportions that we haven't seen since World War II. It is absolutely horrific. What everybody, everybody who is listening here needs to do, or what I would hope they would do, is to speak up about it. Speak up to in your union, in your groups that you're in, in your workplace, in wherever you are. And the reason I'm saying that it goes to support what Lori was talking about, the call for a ceasefire, for a permanent ceasefire. Stop the bloodshed, stop it now, yesterday, seven weeks ago. This needs to happen every minute of the day, every hour of the day, more children, more civilians, more women, more innocent people are being slaughtered. That it there, there, there is no other important thing than making it stop. And the only people and forces right now that can make it stop is the world and world leaders, in particular the United States, in particular our, our government. 
and that comes down to our representatives, they need to step up. We all know at some point there will be a ceasefire. I mean, at some point it will happen. It needs to happen as soon as absolutely humanly possible. So that's what I'm saying to everybody. Speak up, um, push for resolutions, push for, for memos, push for anything you possibly can to push our, our representatives and our government to make this stop. Thank you, Tina. So, so to demonstrate the urgency of taking immediate action, and this information comes from the European Medical Human Rights Monitor, since October 7th, the number of civilians, and this includes children and women, uh, the number of civilian deaths is now 21,000. And this includes 8,312 children, 4,270 women. Uh, the number of people injured um, is 37,400. The number of journalists who have been killed is now at 76. The number of displaced persons is close to 2 million. Um, the number of completely destroyed units is 60,000. The number of partially destroyed units is 167,400. Uh, the number of destroyed or damaged press headquarters is 144. Damaged schools, 262. Destroyed industrial facilities, 1,102. Targeted health facilities, 126, which includes 22 hospitals. And then targeted health staff, 455. So it's astronomical. It's beyond comprehension. It, it is a humanitarian disaster. Uh, and we're witnessing the destruction of an entire people. So we need to act now in support of what Dina shared. Thank you so much, Lori, for that um, information. And we know that the images that are able to get out of the Gaza Strip are just absolutely horrifying images. Dina, I want to go back to you as you and Lori both have talked about what needs to happen or what you hope happens both as humanitarians as well as members of Jewish Voice for Peace. How aligned is that with the U.S. populace? So from what I've seen, I think that there have been a number of polls. Um, and one of them, I think the end of November, showed that among Democrats, 77% respondents said they back a ceasefire. Uh, in the war, and about 58% of Republicans said the same. So this is uh, definitely um, uh, the majority of American people. I think these numbers are really are, are important to know that this is what the American population, what the American people want. They want our governments to push for a, a, a ceasefire, and they should. 
Uh, as far as the numbers that Lori shared with us, uh, they are absolutely horrific and a fraction of those numbers would be horrific. I also wanna point out that in the West Bank, there are several hundred people have been have been killed since October um, 7th. So the violence is not only in Gaza, but it's everywhere. And we have to be a, a little bit careful because there are some people who start to argue those numbers. Those numbers are coming from uh, the Hamas-led uh, uh, health ministry. They can't be trusted. Uh, and again, this is a way to deflect, uh, and we have to we have to be careful. We don't know exactly how many people have been killed. We don't know exactly how many people are still under the rubble uh, of their homes. We we don't know, but no matter what, it is unfathomably horrible uh, what is happening there. Thank you. Both of you have mentioned that what is occurring right now in Palestine and specifically in Gaza Strip is has genocidal tendencies or is genocide. And so I'd like for you to help us understand um, why you're framing it in that way. Okay, so in uh, 1948, December 9th, 1948, uh, there was an adoption by the UN of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Uh, it uh, uh, went into force on the 12th of January of 1951, and 150 um, states, countries have adopted, adopted it. Uh, this uh, genocide... Um, uh, convention defines what genocide is, uh, and there are several elements. Um, and the uh, there are um, five elements, three of which um, I believe, and many uh, believe, including um, uh, experts on on genocide, uh, experts in the field, uh, historians, and others. Um, among them, Raz Siegel, a professor and expert on uh, genocide studies in Israel, he also concurs with the definition of what's happening in Gaza as being genocide. And the three elements that apply here are genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. As such, uh, one, killing members of the group. Uh, two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. And three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction in whole or in part. And uh, all of these elements are currently present in the horrific situation in Gaza. Thank you so much, Dina, for that. Lori, did you want to add something? Can I just add, I think that one of the, the strongest um, examples of this is the blockade on water, food, and mm -hmm. fuel entering into the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. And that means condemning people to not being able to access 
life-sustaining essentials, basically. Thank you so much. So in closing, is there anything that you would like to add that you haven't had a chance to share? The only thing I would like to add is, uh, is a call to action to everyone who has a conscience to insist that our government call for an immediate ceasefire and to call on the international community, those who hold the power to do something, to do something, to put an end to this genocide. I cannot believe that we are witnessing from afar a genocide uh, and not doing what is necessary to end this. And certainly globally, the many, many countries uh, combined have the power, the political power to stop this. And so I'm calling on everyone to flood our congressional delegates with calls demanding that they support a ceasefire, to flood Biden uh, with calls demanding for a ceasefire, and to reach out to other governments globally doing with the same with the same demand. Uh, right now, we have to rely on people power. The masses seem to favor, beyond a doubt, an end to this genocide. And, and But our governments seem to be not hearing us. There's a disconnect between the masses and the governments. And so we need to hold our governments, our, our political leaders accountable. Thank you so much. Again, we've been speaking with Lori Rudolph and Dina Apek, both members of Jewish Voice for Peace in New Mexico. And we want to thank you for taking the time to help us to understand more, taking the time to share a little bit about your own lived experience as Jewish women. Thank you for sharing steps that our listeners can take as I know I'm hearing it in the community, I'm seeing it on social media, that people are asking the question, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that you have given some information on what people can be doing right now. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Since our pre-recorded interview with Lori and Dina, we want to update the data that they provided for casualties and injuries in the Gaza Strip. Based on the Euromed Human Rights Monitor, which is the same source referenced in the interview. As of Thursday, December 14, 24,711 Palestinians have been killed. 92% of those killed in the Israeli air and artillery attacks on the Gaza Strip were civilians including 9,643 children, 3,109 women, 210 health personnel, and 83 journalists. Thank you again, Lori Rudolph and Dina Affick. This next song was chosen by our guests, Daloy Poitsay. It was sung during the Russian revolutions, and it is in the Yiddish language, historically spoken by Ashkenazi Jews. Hey, hey, 
Now we bring you a counterspin interview recorded on December 7. Producer and host Janine Jackson speaks with Sonia Meyerson Knox, Communications Director of the National Organization Jewish Voice for Peace. Sonia Meyerson-Knox is Communications Director of Jewish Voice for Peace. She joins us now by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome to Counterspin, Sonia Meyerson-Knox. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Well, I don't think New York Times columnist Brett Stevens is himself especially worthy of respectful consideration here. Ten years ago, he was saying... The Palestinian saga has gotten awfully boring, hasn't it? Uh, Everyone else in the region is changing. Only the Palestinians remain trapped in ideological amber. How long can the world be expected to keep staring at this four-million-year-old mosquito? Okay, but the Times op-ed page is still looked to as a measure of kind of the range of acceptable opinion, so it's meaningful what Stevens does in this recent piece where he states, on October 8th, Jews woke up to discover who our friends are not. He cites Jewish Voice for Peace as being used as Jewish beards, interesting language, for aggressive anti-Semites. And he essentially suggests that we can maybe dismiss the views of Black Lives Matter because one of them didn't immediately denounce Hamas and we should side-eye academic and corporate diversity efforts because they're also sites of anti-Semitism. We've seen it elsewhere, this notion that, well, Jewish people put out lawn signs after George Floyd's murder, so it's unfair and it's revealingly biased that all black people don't support Israel's assault on Gaza and indeed the occupation itself. It reflects a sad and cynical view of coalitional social movements as transactional, as favor trading. Your work represents a different vision and understanding. Can you talk about that and and how you engage or if you engage that transactional view of justice movements? The thing about Brett Stevens and so much, unfortunately, of the New York Times opinion pages is that, in fact, they are the ones who I would argue are um, historical anomalies stuck in amber. That what we are seeing yet again, as we have seen so many times in recent history, is the fact that people who are believing in progressive causes, who want the world to be a better place, are already understanding and committed to a vision of the world that is intersectional, where our struggles are absolutely connected. The belief that none of us are free unless all of us are free. It's not just a slogan. It's absolutely, I think, the only way that any of us are going to have the future that we're trying to build. And and so to to have the paper of record continually disparage some movements And I would put Jewish Voice for Peace's work um, as anti-Zionist Jews, along with the much, much larger and rapidly growing Palestine solidarity movement globally. But to put all of that somehow always on the exception and to castigate anybody who chooses to stand with an incredibly 
moral and just cause. Simply because one prefers to defend the actions of the state of Israel and a government which is advocating for genocide is just utterly appalling. I am astounded every time the New York Times and most of corporate media does this. The, the, the way that some causes are allowed to be lifted up and progressive and other causes are just, are not, not because they're not presenting as cleanly or as well behaved, but literally because they are pointing out the inconsistencies of U.S. foreign policy and the extent to which the U.S. government and our elected officials are out of step with what the U.S. population wants. Look at all the polls, including the ones that are coming out right now. A majority of, of U.S. voters and the vast majority of Democratic voters are all demanding a lasting ceasefire, and most of them want to see U.S. military aid to the Israeli government conditions, if not stopped entirely. And yet none of that actually appears on the pages of the New York Times. It treats the Palestine movement and those of us who stand for Palestinian freedom and liberation as though we are somehow an anomaly when, in fact, we are the, the vastly growing majority. And another thing, I, I think it also kind of suggests that Jewish Americans have been corrupted, essentially, by wokeness or by critical race theory or something. And as I've seen you point out elsewhere, that's a misunderstanding of history. You know, that's a misunderstanding of the role that Jewish Americans have played in progressive movements to say that all of a sudden um, folks are critical of the state of Israel. Oh, absolutely. As long as there's been the concept of a state of Israel, there have been Jews that have been leading opposition to it. The American Jewish population, let alone the global Jewish population, is not a monolith, and it never was, and it, it never will be. I mean, and that's one of the things I think that makes the Jewish community so strong, is our long cultural and or even historical understanding of ourselves as a place that values debate and introspection and proving your sources and then doubting them and challenging them and researching them and coming back to the discussion and teasing things out over and over again, along with, and this is especially important to the younger generation, I would argue, that are coming up now as young adults, the idea of social justice, of tikkun olam, you know, repairing the world. And, you know, I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, I thought being Jewish meant that my, my grandparents were union supporters and communist activists, and that, I thought that's what meant being Jewish was. And not everyone has that particular background, but so, so, so many of us have absolutely been raised with the idea that that part of what, meaning, of what it means to be, to be a Jew and to, to practice Judaism not just once a week or, or twice a week, but every day, constantly, is this commitment to trying to make the world a better place. And increasingly, like we're seeing right now, that has to include Palestine. That has to include what's happening to Palestinians. But that, to some extent, has always been the case. Um, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace membership ranges from people who are in their first year of college to, to people who are, you know, in their 80s and 90s and who have been lifelong committed anti-Zionists. And, you know, if you look back over the history of, of progressive movements in the United States, there have always been people as part of them who are also Jewish. And so this insistence that all Jews support the actions of the state of Israel, right or wrong, I don't think it ever existed. That was never the fact, and it is increasingly not. But it's only now that 
were even allowed to exist as a group, according to the New York Times. Like the New York Times spent decades not mentioning our organization's name, using our quote, but not attributing us as Jewish Way for Peace members. Mainstream media treats anti-Zionists, and especially Jewish anti-Zionists, as though we're some tiny little percentage of the population. But at the same time, even as back far as polls from 2012, 25 percent of U.S. Jews thought that Israel was operating as an apartheid state. That was 2012. So, again, there's a need of corporate media to to simplify stories down. But then there's also the intentional silencing of voices. And certainly Palestinians have been continually, appallingly silenced in corporate media. And then next up, I would argue, are the anti-Zionist Jews who have also been so extensively silenced. Well, and just to add to it, you know, I thought it was interesting that Stevens cites Jewish Voice for Peace as having organized or having helped organize a much photographed protest at Grand Central Terminal. And I, that's a funny way of dismissing as merely performative um, what is, in fact, mm-hmm. a monumental, incredible, powerful action. And I think it reads a little bit as desperate that intention to dismiss, because things have changed. Things are changing in terms of the relationship of Jewish Americans and and Israel. I I think it's that Grand Central Terminal action was incredibly powerful and moving, and I find it interesting that folks would try to dismiss it by saying people took pictures of it. Well, especially given that that's one of over 80 actions that JVP has organized or co-sponsored in the past seven weeks. You know, that was certainly one of the most iconic and was very, of course, intentionally organized in homage to one of ACT UP's most famous AIDS awareness protests. And, you know, it was thousands and thousands of people. And then, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of more who couldn't even make it inside who were protesting outside in solidarity. Chicago had a thousand Jews protesting in in their train station. Every city that that across the U.S. has seen protests led by Jews calling for ceasefire. They've also seen dozens more protests by Palestinians, often together with Jews calling for ceasefire. But the numbers are not going down. They're only getting bigger. And, you know, whether it's been inside of the halls of Congress or taking over train stations or taking over bridges, or just outside of the district offices of our members of Congress every other day, week in and week out, demanding that our elected officials actually represent what their voters want. We have been on the streets and we have been organizing. And, you know, it's seven, eight weeks now, and we are not flagging. People call us all the time saying, I live in this city, when's the next action? Our members are coming to us because JVP is, you know, a grassroots organization that is very much member led coming to us saying, what about this location? Can we do something for this? How about that? Like the energy, it's not flagging, even though, you know, seven weeks is a long time in the news cycle. And if anything, people are more committed to it. Of course, the fact is the matter is that the Israeli government is still bombing civilians that are, you know, captive in Gaza and and anything that is going to get worse in the coming days. So we are very much aware of the scale of what is at stake. And I think that also drives us. But the numbers are not flagging. The numbers are only growing. Like we know, I think especially as U.S. Jews, we know what it means when a government 
uses genocidal rhetoric and then attacks civilians. We know where that leads. And that's, of course, why we are committed to saying never again means never again for anyone, right? And that includes Palestinians. Well, and I, it sounds like a deflection, but it's not because one of the worries, of course, of conflating, vigorously conflating, life-alteringly conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, it obscures the real anti-Semitism, you know, that exists. Absolutely. And makes it harder to fight that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's devastating right now watching as real anti-Semitism is absolutely on the rise, you know, because white supremacy is absolutely on the rise. And the number of attacks that we have seen on Muslims and on Palestinians in this country is, is you know, unequivocally on the rise. The attack on the three Palestinian students in Vermont is atrocious. But instead of, you know, leading Jewish organizations that, that claim to work on civil rights actually addressing that, they're focusing all of their attention on defending the government of the state of Israel so that it can be held accountable for the war crimes it's committing. It's incredibly worrisome. And as part of the larger movement committed to being anti-racist and defending all of our communities and, and being in deep relationship with them, we have been saying for, for a while now that the rise of white nationalism is really, really worrisome and that the U.S. government has under certain presidents, certainly embraced it. And under the current president is not doing enough to fight it. Right. Just like we'd argue college campuses have platformed white supremacists numerous times and create incredibly unsafe spaces. And one of the results of that is absolutely the rise of this incredibly terrifying, horrific white nationalist movement that certainly uses anti-Semitism as one of its tools in its toolbox. We can and we will dismantle that. And we do that in solidarity with everybody from the other communities we work with, with our Muslim allies and our Palestinian allies and our black allies and everybody else that is committed to being in solidarity against white supremacy. But we can't do that nearly as effectively if at the same time we're being continually accused ourselves of something that we're not doing. If these organizations that claim to worry about anti-Semitism really did, then they would stop defending the Israeli government you know, and protecting it from being held accountable for bombing hospitals and instead allow us all to focus on what we need to do to dismantle white supremacy and the anti-Semitism that white supremacy uses. I would love you to talk about what you'd like to see more or less of from reporting, but I want to just reference, as I do that, an interview that I often refer to with Ellen Schrecker, who is an expert in McCarthyism, who says... There's an idea that we went through this period and, you know, it was difficult, but we all lived through it. We, we made it through. We made it out the other side. And what she says is, you know what? We didn't all make it through. We didn't all survive. It's not only that people lost their jobs and their livelihoods and their friends, but certain coalitions didn't survive. Certain ideas that were being put into action didn't survive. And we were set back by that McCarthyism in unknowable ways. And I think it's relevant here. You know, there are costs being made here, not just that people are being fired for having the wrong opinion or for putting something on Facebook, but people are being cowed. People are who would have marched are not marching because they see the harms. 
what would you say to folks who are maybe a little bit scared about the costs of speaking out at this time? That's an incredibly potent point. Right? You know, like I come back to it all the time because we didn't all make it. It, did, it didn't all work out fine. And I think it's a point that's often lost. And, of course, I think the only way that we can make sure that all of us make it, right, that all of us come together and all of us are protected is if we are truly all in this together. The doxing of, of students, particularly um, Palestinian and Muslim students, but also Jewish anti-Zionist students, the doxing of students is unacceptable, and we have to come together and call that out. The response from certain Jewish institutions, legacy institutions in particular, which has silenced and or fired staff for raising issues about ceasefire, not even necessarily getting into anti-Zionism. All of that has to be called out, and we do it together, and we come out loudly together. And one of the things that Jewish Voice for Peace has always been committed to is building the Jewish community and Judaism beyond Zionism. So with our rabbis and with our Havura networks and with all of our chapters, we bring in Jewish ritual, we, we embrace the, the teachings of, of, of our movement elders, in order to offer alternative Jewish communal spaces so that if speaking up for Palestine, if demanding a, cease, a lasting ceasefire, if even articulating that Palestinians deserve just as many human rights as anyone else, if that is too much for the community that you are currently in, for your family or for your, your Jewish community or whatever, there are other communities that are waiting and welcoming and would love to have you with us. And we are growing and we have the full range of Judaism at our fingertips and we are building a Judaism that is not dependent or in any way, in fact, related to the actions of the state of Israel. And I always think back to something that Muhammad al-Kurd said a few years ago, which was, if you think it's hard having these conversations at the dinner table, imagine actually what it's like living a day in the life of a Palestinian. And I think that's something that we all have to hold on to as well, that it doesn't feel great initially to initiate these really hard conversations. And we're here to help, and it's what we're being asked to do, and it's absolutely, I think, the moment to be doing it. So Jewish Voice for Peace and other organizations that are part of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, including If Not Now and others, are offering how to have hard conversations. We're offering the tools so that when you have these conversations with your friends and your kids you went to summer camp with or your, you know, your kind of, you know, grumpy older uncle, you're not alone in it. And you also know how to do it in a way that we believe leads to everybody actually becoming more formed, more aware and hearing each other. I mean, obviously, we want to see Palestinian narrative centered more. The fact that there was no Palestinian uh, voice on the op-ed pages of any national U.S. paper in the weeks following October 7th was appalling. I'm very concerned about the fact that so much of mainstream TV seems to find it okay to fire their Muslim and Arab anchors and hosts. We just saw that with Nasser Hassan most recently. There's all sorts of context that's continually being ignored. Why is the fact that the majority of the population of Palestinians in Gaza are all already refugees? Like, how did that happen? Oh, we don't need to talk about that. Well, just the clock just started on October 7th. And of course, the clock didn't start on October 7th. It started 75 years earlier with the Nakba in 1948, at the least. But also, 
and this is something that I fundamentally can't believe is still happening in mainstream press, corporate media needs to stop repeating the Israeli military's propaganda and talking points and treating it as though it were fact. It is not fact. The Israeli military, for example, didn't tell Palestinians in Gaza to flee from North Gaza to South Gaza, quote-unquote, because it was worried about their own safety. It was not worried about Palestinian safety. The Israeli military is bombing civilians daily. There's so many accusations that are made by Israeli officials who are then invited onto talk shows and quoted in newspaper articles as though they are speaking fast, when in fact they are saying incredibly horrible, racist, genocidal things, and none of that is called out. There's a level of accuracy and accountability that corporate media seems to not apply those standards to the Israeli military and to the Israeli government. And it is shocking and a high, high time for, you know, very, very, you know, we are well overdue for that to no longer be the case. We've been speaking with Sonia Meyerson-Knox of Jewish Voice for Peace online at jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Sonia Meyerson-Knox, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. A special thank you to Janine Jackson and the production team at Counterspin and Fair for this informational segment. If you would like to learn more about Counterspin and Fair, visit fair.org. Again, that is fair.org. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community education. We'd like to thank our guests, Lori Rudolph and Dina Affek from Jewish Voice for Peace, Albuquerque. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is Hevenu Shalom Aleinu, a song for peace in Hebrew and Arabic. I'm Barbara Ramirez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches, Nuevo México. Stay safe. Hey, baby, show me your